Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sheila Shoiga, and welcome to Ready to Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not, but my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort, or simply entertain you. Yesterday, I had a conversation that is, without a doubt, the most affecting podcast I've ever recorded. I really want to encourage other people to speak out. Like, it's time we flip the script, you know? It's time the victims take back control. Like, I'm trying to take back control of my life, the life that Peter Whelan took away from me, you know? And we have to continue to speak out, and we, we need other people to speak out on our behalf, too. We need other people to fight for us, you know? And to keep talking about it, to keep pushing. Yes to keep having this topic arise until change happens. Sinead O'Leary was only 19 when her life changed forever. She and her friend Nicola Sweeney were getting ready to go out when a neighbour broke into Nicola's home and attacked them both. Sinead was stabbed 20 times and managed to survive the onslaught, while her friend Nicola unfortunately died due to her wounds. In this conversation, Sinead speaks about her friendship with Nicola, the night itself, the court case and how 19 years on she doesn't feel safe or respected by the state. It's a harrowing listen so please do check the show notes in advance as it's important to prepare yourself. Can we start by talking about your friendship with Nicola? So I suppose Nicola and I had very similar childhoods. Actually I moved to, I was born in Cork as was she and when I was seven, my family moved to London um, for my dad's work. And Nicola, coincidentally, her family would have moved over to London when she was three, I think. Um, they had bars there. And 
So she would have been 15 moving back to Cork. She went into um, the junior search year. What's that? Third year mm-hmm. <laughs> in school. And my family moved back the same year as her family did. But my dad would have been fair. The importance of education it was something, you know, my dad was very thought a lot about and wanted me to stay behind for an extra year to finish my GCSEs in London because mm. they would have been in fourth year and I would have missed the junior cert had I moved to the UK in fourth year, to back to Ireland in fourth year. So I stayed on an extra year and then back to Cork and I went into a school called Scovera in fifth year, which Nicola had been in since fourth year. And we both because of growing up in the UK, neither yeah. of us spoke Irish. So we ended up in the Irish study together. We were thrown down into the library, mm-hmm. you know, four lessons a week is where we spent time in the library together. And I suppose that's how we really got to know each other. Yeah. You know, and obviously we would have been drawn together anyway, being such a similar background and mm-hmm. both these girls with English accents in the school and things like that. So we became friends very quickly. I don't, Nicola was Nicola was a striking looking girl anyway and she was very fashionable and then she was someone so bubbly that you'd be drawn to her in that sense but there was actually as well a lovely shyness about Nicola mm. do you know and I think you know a lot of that at that age you could really see in her that there was although she was very bubbly and confident outwardly you could see that kind of self-doubt in her and we both had such similar interests like we both loved history so we were in history class together and it was a very small class there was only maybe six or seven of us in history class and you know and then we were both in art class together and you know our similar interests really threw us together in that sense you know and she was just someone that you know you just like a magnet together because we were so alike in so many ways you know Mm. and would you have been about am I guessing 15 16 around that age yeah I was 16 16 Yeah. yeah And I would have had a bit of chip on my shoulder going into school. And I was like, oh, you know, I would have been brought up in a comprehensive school in London and then moving back to Ireland and going to kind of this girl's private school. I was very, um, I was, it was, it was a daunting, daunting experience starting school. And it was great to have someone who understood where I come from, you know, Mm. kind of thing as well. So many similarities. Like we both had the only girls, we both had two brothers, you know, and although there would have been that kind of tomboy aspect of us, I think when you do have brothers at home, we both are very glamorous mothers. So we were really into our fashion and our makeup and, you know, mm. all the things that young teenage girls love, you know. Yeah. It sounds like you were inseparable. We were. Yeah. We were for many years. And then the year before Nicola died, I actually moved to Dublin and I was in Trinity at the time. And I ended up there because... It wasn't my first choice. I loved Cork because I didn't settle well in, in London and I was really happy back in Cork. Mm. You know, once I'd been here a few years, I, I loved it. But my Irish exemption didn't go through. Something like that had happened. So it was only Trinity that accepted me because they thought I'd failed Irish. And I ended up in Trinity then and I I didn't settle at all. And, and Nicola was a great source of comfort for me then you know we used to speak every night on the phone and and she really was my rock at that time because I I really missed home and I missed my friends and you know I'd come to the decision in April I didn't know whether I wanted to continue in Dublin so 
I came home and I was spending a lot of time with Nicola. Like the week that she died, I think I spent maybe four nights in her house that week. You know, she was very much a huge support when I was making a big decision in my life to maybe give it up in Dublin and come back to Cork and, you know, Mm -hmm. get back into the college system that way. So in 2002, you were, were you both 19 or were you 19 and she was 20 or vice versa? I was 19 and Nicola was 20. Mm hmm. And I feel even uncomfortable asking you to talk about the night, but I know you're you're willing and 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 open to talking about it. You're okay about talking about that night. Yeah, because it's not something I know. We were talking a lot about violence against women now in the media and stuff, and you're like, oh, that does that bring you back? And it's like, well, well that night has never left. Okay, you know, yeah, that, that's not something that, you know, I live I live with that night, so I'm I'm okay to talk about it. You oh, know, okay. So you were going to hers uh, and you were going to make her dinner. Yes, we had decided not to go out. We were going to spend the Saturday night in. It was my birthday in a few days. So we were, you know, we were like, oh, we'll go out next weekend. And, you know, tonight now we'll stay in. There was stars in their eyes or something that she was really into on the TV. There was a girl from Cork, I think, on it at the time. And, you know, I went off to the house and... As I usually did, let myself in the back door, made dinner and we had some DVDs set up. But then all the phone calls started coming in and there was a few people out and about in town were like, ah, girls, come on, come in. So it was very late when we decided, right, let's just go. Let's go into town. And we went up to her room to start getting ready. She had like an ensuite in her just off her bedroom. Yeah. So, you know, we had showered and done all that. And I remember I was sitting on her bed just I was curling my hair at the time and then Nicola was in her ensuite doing her makeup at that point and I remember actually at the time it's really strange that sometimes you can be alerted to something not being okay Mm -hmm. and I said it to Nicola I was like oh I feel really anxious all of a sudden and she was like yeah I know me too or you know and and I had just broken up with a boyfriend and we're like oh are we gonna bump into them in town tonight what's gonna happen and we were almost to the point of being ready and she was like, oh, will you ring the taxi there? And I had rang and we were just talking to him about when he could come up and he was like, yeah, just give me a ring back in a couple of minutes there and I'll come up for you. Mm. And it was that point that I just noticed a figure at the end of the corridor, say from her bedroom would have been a long corridor of the upstairs floor and I saw someone at the end of the corridor kind of, walking like intently towards me and mm. for a second I was just like I mean who could that be but then I was like this could be someone I don't that should be here you just don't know you know Nicola's younger brother it could have been a friend of his a friend of Nicola's I didn't know and he just walked straight towards me and I jumped up and he pushed me down on the floor he never spoke and then he just started stamping all over my body and I screamed out to Nicola and then she came out of the door to her ensuite and she was just screaming at him to stop and then just shock of what was going on. And he never spoke and he just turned to her and he lifted up his jumper to reveal two knives in his belt. And he just grabbed one of the knives and turned to me and just started stabbing down on top of me. You know, then the knives were aimed for my stomach and my chest and my heart. 
and he kept looking back and forth at Nicola, who was just you know screaming in terror. Yeah. Um, I was screaming in terror at the time too. I just instinctively was throwing my arms up into the knives, mm-hmm. mainly my right arm, to defend myself. I remember just pushing my arms almost into it God. to kind of take the blow. And then the knife that he was using actually broke with the force in my arm. And I know that that wound as well, it, they went straight through my arm out the other side into my chest. And then he ran for Nicola then. And I saw her, you know, run into the bathroom and, and closed the door. And at that point, I just was like, OK, get up, get help, get up, get help. And I remember running down the corridor and I was in my mind going, where, where can I get a phone? What can I do? What can I do? Maybe there's a phone in Nicola's mom and dad's room. And then, but then I thought he was behind me. So I was just like, no, keep going, keep going. And I came running down the stairs and then everything was black. Everything was pitch black downstairs. He had turned off all the lights on his way in. And then I was like, okay, you just have to hide now. Like, you're not going to be able to get to a phone. So I ran into, there was a bathroom downstairs and I was able to, I mean, I was fumbling with the lock to even get myself in there because my arms were destroyed at that point. And I got into the bathroom and I was just trying to process what was going on. And I don't even think I understood that I'd been stabbed at that point. Do you know, I didn't, you know, your mind is just gone. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I could just see this blood everywhere and it was pooling on the floor. And I was just like, where is he? Where is he now? And I was just trying to be really quiet. And then all of a sudden, I think I could, it wasn't even in there a minute, I'd say. And I could hear footsteps coming and walking past the door. And in my mind, I thought that maybe he was trying to leave the house and come around the side and maybe break in the bathroom window that he knew I was there. But then a few seconds passed and there was nothing. And then I knew I had to get Nicola because I thought she would help me. I thought she was safe at that point, okay. you know, and I was like, I, I need to get out of here now. I need to get back to Nicola. And I got the bathroom door open and I remember just this. It was, that was frightening. It was really scary at that point. And, and this was only this was a really short time. Like, I mean, I suppose it's hard to to know exactly. It was mere minutes, minutes. from when he had entered wow. the house okay. to this, you know, okay. Okay. a few minutes. And I came out, I opened the door and I just called her name and I got no response and I called her name again. And then I was like, right, you have to run. You have to get back up to her. You need to come out of the hallway and run up the stairs. So I came out and I ran and I ran to her room. And when I got into the room, I found her lying face down on the floor and she was groaning and she, um, I could see blood and I turned her over and I was just talking to her and her lips had gone blue and I was like, okay, right, I need a phone, I need a phone. So I I picked up Nicola's mobile and at that point I had to leave her and go and push myself up against the bedroom door because I was obviously very aware that he could be back at any second, you know. And so I started ringing the 999 or 112 or whatever, you know. Mm. And I got through to an operator and obviously I was in a very panicked state explaining what had happened, that we needed help. 
and the operator had put me on hold, which was really frightening. And I was panicked that, you know, we needed to get help now. Nicola needed help now. Yeah, yeah. And was I being believed? I didn't know. And I spoke to the guards then, I think. And then we hung up from that conversation and I felt it wasn't enough. So I rang again and asked to be put through to the ambulance service. And, and again, just relayed, we need help now. This is where we are. I gave them the codes to the gate because it was the electric gates that were on the property and I knew they'd need a code to get in. And then I was still not confident that we were going to get help. So I, I rang home. I rang my mom and dad. I remember my, my younger brother picked up the phone. I was just like screaming down at the phone at him. We've been attacked. Me and Nicola have been attacked. You need to get dad. Like you have to get dad. We mm. need help. And my dad, they just jumped into the car immediately. My older brother and my mom and dad. And they drove out. I think they would have been about 11 miles away. And I was just sitting in the room then waiting. And, and Nicola's phone had rang again. And I thought it would be someone ringing back. And it was Nicola's mom, which was just awful. And I was telling Josephine, you know, we something's happened, but Nicola's going to be okay. But she can't come to the phone right now. And we're trying to get help. Um, and she had only been talking to her maybe an hour before that. Should they talk like 10 times a day on the phone? You know, it was yeah. horrifically shocking for her the way that played out as well. And then finally, I think I kind of looked at the time would have been about six or seven minutes that this from when I made the phone calls, I could finally hear the, the sirens coming and I could hear the guards outside announcing their presence. So I got up and I ran down the corridor again. And I remember seeing a guard, it was Detective John O'Reardon, at the bottom of the stairs running up to me. And I just collapsed into his arms because I knew then that, you know, we were safe then. Right. You know, and yeah. and kind of thing. And I know I was, I kind of passed out then. I was losing a lot of blood, you know, and I had to really keep myself together until help came. And I was, in and out of consciousness at that that point and he was saying he was trying to hold my arms together I was just bleeding everywhere there was blood there was my blood all up the walls all pooling in the stairs there was blood everywhere and then I remember hearing more guards around I could hear my older brother outside at the front door trying to get in to me and you know he's like that's my sister inside you have to let me in and then I remember seeing my mother and she just looked utterly shocked and devastated. She didn't know what was going on. And John Reardon was radioing then a description that I'd given him and they'd realized that there was someone outside who, who met that description. And it kept me inside then. And it transpired that he had gone home he discarded the second knife in the driveway yeah and he had gone home i think he had a cigarette he washed showered changed his clothes had a cigarette with his mother i believe and then the sirens started so he came back to the house jesus sorry not only did he come back to the the gates where people were congregating but mm. he walked up the driveway up to the entrance of the house acting like a concerned neighbor. And my mom was there outside. She was 
she thought she was going to pass out. She was having to take air and sit down on a windowsill. And she remember seeing him and thinking it was strange that that these people were there because they weren't paramedics. They weren't guards, you know. Yeah. And then eventually she saw the guards walk him away. Um, Kind of thing. And at that stage, I was put into an ambulance then. And I do remember that that moment a lot. And, you know, at this stage, I thought that Nicola was still alive. And I was just frantic. Where's Nicola? What's happening? What's going on? Where's Nicola? And, you know, I was being told, you know, Nicola's being brought to another hospital so that we don't overload. You're going here and, and she's going somewhere else. And I remember being up for hours in the hospital and they were treating my wounds because they were preparing me for surgery the next morning. And I just kept asking, you know, where is she? Why, why aren't people updating me about her? What's going on? You know, because I definitely felt a sense, I think, at that stage that we'd gotten through it, you know, that it's okay because we're both okay, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is okay. We'll we'll be okay. And then I remember a a nurse coming into me at like, I think, like three or four in the morning. And she was just like, look, Sinead, we have something to tell you. And sorry, I get a bit upset now. um, And she told me that Nicola had passed away and then everything then just you know it it was so black then for me you know to find to find out that Nicola didn't live through that just I don't know I was I was gone in that moment you know and I remember coming out of surgery the next day and just you're overwhelmed with the the deep pain of knowing that she had died you know there was so many aspects going on as well with my my own trauma and the overwhelming physical pain that I was in but but knowing that she had died just really just just blew me out of the water then you know I'm actually lost for words uh Sinead when you speak about uh you know the fact that there was a code on the gate that you had to give the code you know to those coming in he managed to get he managed to 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 what to scale the gate to make his way he had scaled the walls okay do you know and then it was you know you're left with who was that like yeah you know what who did this do you know who was this what like how did this even happen and there's so many questions and you know and being in that hospital i think i was in hospital for about a week and there was guards coming in and, and asking you questions and, and you know it was just such a confusing time and yeah. then you're hearing more and more about who he was you know and and what was going on and you know it unfolded that he had so I think he was probably quite known to the guards in the area because there had been a history there but you didn't know him. It, you or Nicola no, didn't know him. No, not at all. And then Nicola didn't either. It's not someone that she ever... You know, you'd be racking your brain. There was no acknowledgement that night of her knowing this person. You're like, who was he? Did he know her? Like, you know, there was so yeah. many questions there. You know, she didn't. She'd only lived in the house for a few years. He was a neighbour. It wasn't someone that she knew personally or, or anything like that. And, you know, you kind of started then to find out the timeline leading up to that night with regards to his history and you know this was april 27th and it it was new year's eve just before that 
he tried to enter a house through a house party that two girls were having. Okay. And they wouldn't let him in, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then he came back with uh, bottles and hurleys and launched a vicious attack on these girls. And it was only because there was other men there that managed to overpower him. Oh my God, right. Do you know that, that nothing worse happened yeah. to these girls? And then he went away to a facility, I think in Limerick, you know, a kind of some sort of rehab facility for three months then. And, you know, the reports were, you know, he was a model participant and and all this. And he was only out from that facility two weeks that he was back in the streets in Cork before Nicola was murdered. And that night, earlier that night, he had been in the Rochestown Inn and there was, oh, there was something going on there and, and the barman didn't want to serve them anymore. And he picked up a glass ashtray and tried to smash it over the barman's head. <clears throat> but I think someone had intervened. So then the guards were called and, you know, they were like, Peter, you got to go home. And there's a summons waiting for you at home. Oh. And it was the summons for the attack on those girls. So he went home and on his way home, he, he saw a young boy on the road and he admitted that he he wanted to kill that boy. And he was going to do it with a rock and he decided it would be too messy, but he had a few knives tucked away at home. So he went home to get the knives and then he went back down on the road and the boy was gone. And then there was obviously something that attracted him to Nicola's house then, you know. So he just wanted to kill. He just wanted to kill. I mean, he did. He wouldn't even have been aware of how many people were in the house. You know? Mother God. And, and even then when he was taken away with the guards, hmm. they walked him back to the house and it was in within minutes that he actually admitted it and he was reported to even have been kind of boasting and gloating and, you know, asking what was the scene like inside and, you know, I read reports from the guards at the time when they went into the bedroom with him to retrieve the clothes that he had another knife and they thought he was going to attack them. They didn't know what was going to happen next, you know. And for me even to to find out that he had come back to the house was just utterly frightening that he had the presence of mind Mm -hmm. to launch such a ferocious, vicious attack to try and murder two innocent girls, to succeed in murdering one of them. And then 10 minutes later to be able to completely mask that and stand there like a concerned neighbour. And I know then in his interview with the guards, he wasn't remorseful for what he had done. The only regret that he expressed was not doing more to ensure that I was dead. Like it's it's impossible. It's impossible to make any sense of that. It's completely senseless. It is completely senseless. I mean, you're trying to find some understanding of how or why what would compel another human being to act in that manner you know a, a motiveless senseless killing do you know when you you look at poor Nicola and you know and you always hear all the time the wrong place at the wrong time and like we were exactly where we should have yeah, been in the safety we of... were in the safety yeah. of her home in her bedroom in a house that she had chosen in a house that she loved and you know I'm sure when we were to go into town later on that night, that's when our parents would have been worried. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's when they would have been like, I hope the girls are safe. I hope they get home safe. You know? 
but you'd never ever consider that they wouldn't be safe. We wouldn't be safe in her home, you know. So you were told that night by the nurse that Nicola had passed away and then you still had to face into surgery. Yeah. Do you remember that time? I do. I mean, there's aspects of it that are hazy and things. And I know I didn't give my statement for a week or two and, and you know, and things like that. Because, I mean, I was in an awful state even in the hospital. I mean, I thought this person was going to come back and kill me. I, d I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't know what was going on at all. And I remember coming home and, you know, you're dealing with Nicola's death, the trauma of what happened to me, but then this overwhelming physical pain, like I was completely incapacitated. I couldn't lift my right arm. I couldn't move it. My whole body, like I was bruised. My legs, just everything. I had a stab wound in my back, I had them in my stomach, my chest, my left arm. My right arm was destroyed. I was so weak, you know. There was so little that I could even do for myself physically Yeah. at that time. And how are you today? Or do you still suffer with pain? Yeah, no, I do. Do you know, I mean, I've, I've permanent nerve damage, do you know, and like my right arm, it, you know, obviously I'm right handed. You know, so yeah. it was obviously a defensive action that I used my right arm to defend myself. But I'd have, I think I've maybe 12 or so stab wounds just to the right arm alone in all different places, you know. So there was so much nerve damage, tendon damage, muscle damage. A lot of the knife wounds in my upper arm went straight through the arm and out the other side. You know, I would be in chronic pain from that. Mm. Um, yeah. Listening to you talk about the night itself your instinct and how how strong it was. I suppose the first one that you had this strange feeling that you both had a strange feeling, yeah. but you didn't know what it was. Was it to do with the anxiousness you felt maybe going into town, but was it something else? And then, you know, to have protected yourself in that way, because I suppose that's just that's just that gut instinct, whatever we want to call it, kicking in. Um, and, and we don't know how we're going to respond in a situation, mm -hmm. you know, the fight, flight or freeze scenario. Yeah, you, just, you never do. Yeah. You know? And Nicola fought for her life. Of course. You know, of course. Her, you know, I found out after the fact it was her, it was her bathrobe got stuck under the door. That's how she didn't get the door closed and locked. Oh, and he kicked that in. And, you know, I think Nicola was stabbed 11 times and it was the wound that it pierced her heart. You know, she fought to get to the window. I think she was going to try and get out the window. Do you know, and, and every which way you look at it, I shouldn't have survived that night. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I survived that night. And had I not come out of the bathroom, I most certainly would have died in that bathroom. I was bleeding out so much, you know. That was the other thing I was going to say, the fact that you knew I, ha you know, something was telling you I have to get out of here. And even though I can't imagine the fear of the not knowing what you were step you were stepping out into darkness mm. and not knowing if he was there or not but you still knew i ha i have to do this yeah it's, i suppose you know, it's, there was it's survival it is yeah because it was something inside me i wanted to lie down and go to sleep yeah okay. i was so weak you know that was the overwhelming urge mm. was just to succumb to that feeling of, of going i think you know and then there's something that was like no you get up and yeah. you go yeah. you know 
And I suppose a lot of that was being there with Nicola and knowing that you were you go back up her. to her, yeah. you know, and then yeah. it was right. She needs help more than you do when I saw the state that she was in. So that would have been something that would have kept me alert and kept me able to get that help, you know. The fact that you're here today and you're able to to talk about your horrific experience and and, and keep Nicholas memory alive as well is is remarkable but also the alternative doesn't bear thinking of had you unfortunately died like Nicola had where would Peter Whelan be now exactly and then you know knowing that he had another knife and it was like was he going to go on and, and kill more people um, and what would have happened that night would he would he have even gotten away with it you don't know do you know, know what I mean? We don't know what could have happened next. The fact that he went home, he went home, he he washed himself, he changed his clothes, he had a cigarette with his mother and then he came back over. I mean, it's 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 the stuff of, of a movie script. It is. It, it's not, it, it's 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 kind of like, how is it? How is that real life? How did that really happen? But and it, it, it really gives an insight into how disordered yeah, and dangerous he he is, you know. So that night, he showed no remorse. In fact, his only his only regret was that he didn't he didn't do more. And yeah, I know we're going I'm to sure get into for him. There would be a mindset that had he ensured I was dead, maybe he would have gotten off scot free. You just don't know. Yeah, you know. Yeah. We're going to get into the court case and all that has happened since um, mm-hmm. because it is it's complicated and it's layered and it actually beggars belief. Having, you know, researched and read up on 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 your experience, I, I am just going, how 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 has this happened? Let's take it from the court case. Uh, so, yeah, it would have been. Say Nicola died, it was the 27th of April and then that time you know I didn't know what was going on at that time to be honest with you or even how I would physically recover or mentally recover and then you know that there's a court case coming up and he was pleading not guilty for a long time okay and then all of a sudden the plea changed coming up to December even though he had admitted it he was still pleading wow oh there was so many aspects to it there was there was things then that he had had friends say that they had given him drugs that night, which weren't in his system. And then they retracted those statements. There was so much going on. And, okay. you know, finally it came to him going for the guilty pleas for both murder and attempted murder. And then there was a court case. I think it was towards the end of December mm-hmm. in Dublin. So then it was. I think I got about a month's notice for that. And then, you know, mentally getting ready for that to have to face him again, you know. And I mean, that was a very tense time. And I remember going up to the court case and you know, you're so anxious and having to face that person. And I would have been expecting some flicker of remorse or shame in him. But there was none, you know, it was the courtroom that day it was chilling it was frightening the lack of remorse there and and that's not just my perspective there was court correspondents there who relayed that to me 
in recent years yeah, who never that. forgot that feeling in that room that day, you know. And I had to stand up and I was given the opportunity to to give it. I didn't have to, but I wanted to, to mm-hmm. give a victim impact statement and address the judge. Um, And even then I had to walk past him and I felt him trying to stare me out as if almost trying to intimidate me from speaking out. Where did you get the strength to do that? From Nicola, I think. Yeah. I don't know would it have been the same if this was something that just happened to me, mm-hmm. you know. Okay. And then the, you know, it was Judge Carney. He handed down, it was the first of its nature, a consecutive sentence, which is rare. Mm-hmm. You know, he directed that the outrage of this, these crimes that, you know, he had to do what he could in his power to ensure that Whelan served the maximum time that he could send down because he was clearly such a danger to the public. So he organized the sentencing that he would serve a life sentence for Nicola's murder and a 15-year sentence for my attempted murder. So what did that break down to? It was a that was 40 years then for the life sentence am I right yeah that would be the assumption you know because you're looking at generally someone would serve the 20-25 years for the life sentence and then you had the the 15 years on top and then you know and you're also I mean everyone around you is advising you look this this guy's a maniac he's a psychopath Mm -hmm. he'll never get out do you know They, they he couldn't they couldn't take that risk do you know and then it was it was very quick that the first appeal was launched. You know, you couldn't even rest in in knowing that. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Justice was served. And his legal team 
argued that you couldn't serve 15, if a life sentence is life, how could you serve 15 years on top of that? How could that be followed? And I mean, luckily, the judge that revisited that case just simply said, fine, we'll switch the sentencing. The 15 years has to be served first. And then the life sentence will start once the 15 years has been served. That was an eye opener for what was to come, you know, that these so this guy wasn't going to take accountability or responsibility for what he did. Yeah. So again, just listening to it, it's it, it's kind of like a part of me is going, what am I not understanding? What 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 am I? Why don't I get this? So he's. He is guilty. It's proven he's guilty. He is admitted he's guilty. He is the man who has committed this crime or these crimes and he's back in the courts to appeal the decision on what grounds yeah oh it was like his human rights the legality like he went every which way that he could anything that he could find to appeal on he did there was another appeal in 2007 there was an appeal to the european courts in 2010 based on his human rights when he had taken nicola's life mm-hmm where were her human rights? You know, it was shocking. And, you know, to think that this is the eight years following that happening, that he then launched a horrific assault on the judicial system, you know? And there was no peace for Nicola's family or I, nothing. You know, you're constantly, another appeal crops up and you're not being informed by the court system that that's happening. I was finding out about this through media outlets. I don't understand how you're not told. I, I know, you know, it was like this case was revisited so many times by so many judges and every single judge upheld that original sentencing that it had to be consecutive, mm-hmm. you know. In 2015, you found out that he had been let out on day release yeah and it was not only that so I found out Nicola's family had found out from a third party and I know at the time it was uh, Charlie Flanagan was justice minister and they'd met with him mm-hmm. and he I believe lied to them and said that that wasn't happening that these day releases hadn't taken place Um. so found out that not only had he had a few day releases in Cork, um, but that he had been up to see the parole board three times at that stage, which constitutionally, legally, that shouldn't have happened. He should not have been entitled to parole for Nicola's murder until seven years into her sentence should have been the first time that he had accessed the parole board to start the parole process. However, he had been able to have a parole hearing eight years into the sentencing for my attempted murder, which would have been legal. Mm. However, the prison obviously decided to continue that parole process, even though the parole board acknowledged at the second parole hearing that he had just begun his life sentence for Nicola's murder.
How do you feel? How do you feel about... I mean, I'm sure you feel many different things, but this entire process. So you've gone through an absolute nightmare. Your best friend's life is taken. You are scarred physically, mentally and emotionally for life. And you go to court, you bravely stand up, you give your statement, you play, you, you know, you, you do the best you absolutely can. And you feel like there, well, at least justice has been served. And then, and then the years that follow are, it's the rug is being pulled out from underneath you at every turn for you and for Nicola's family. I mean, when I found out about those day releases and the parole hearings, I I couldn't even process that information, to be honest with you. Yeah. I was so utterly shocked because at that stage, I would have believed he had just served 15 years for me and would have been two years into his life sentence for Nicola's murder. So that would have been 17 years in. That wasn't something that I was expecting to be coming anytime soon at all. It was a huge shock trying to process that information, finding out the way that I did. It was just, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. I couldn't, I was physically sick. Um, and then it was immediately me trying to find answers, which was even more difficult. I could, like, there was no one there to tell me what had happened, how this had happened, why this had happened. Do you know, within a day or two of finding out that information, I was told that there was going to be a primetime investigation highlighting this. Will you take part? Do you know, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was going on. I just couldn't understand how it had happened. And I remember just being frantic. I, the first thing I did, I started ringing guard stations and I was like, hmm. what's going on? What, how is this happening? What, what is happening? Why isn't anyone here supporting me and telling me what has happened? And, and there was nothing. It was so hard to get answers. There was no answers at all. There was none. And then it eventually came down to having to contact a prison liaison officer and registering with them and that they will be notifying you of future parole hearings no acknowledgement of why you weren't notified in the past, why you weren't sought out, mm -hmm. because you should have been alerted to these day releases. And not only that, but more importantly, Nicola's family and I should have been made very aware of these parole hearings in order to submit our victim impact statements, which are a huge, important part of the process. And you just feel so cheated. And I so felt so just trusting of it all because had we known these parole hearings were happening mm. we would have done our utmost best to ensure that they were stopped and that they didn't go ahead because they weren't legal they were unconstitutional he had not served his minimum term the seven years for life yet he never they never should have happened but a result of them happening was that he managed to get so far into the parole process that he was granted these neutral venue visits or what they are called on a three monthly basis. So once every three months, he would be coming to Cork to meet with family in a neutral venue. This is bananas. 
And I remember that that quote from Hamlet, you know, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark was just whirring around my head. Yeah. And I was like, is someone being paid off here along the way? How, like, this isn't right at all. How has this happened? But in the end, I kind of just had to recognize that, oh, do you know what it is? No one cares. It's that no one cares. No one has taken the time within the prison service and the parole process to actually say, hang on a minute, this guy isn't entitled to, par- to a parole hearing. Mm-hmm. And do you feel it's a lack of communication as well between departments? It sounds like. Oh, definitely. Mm. Do you know, because I definitely just. Oh, I didn't know what to think of it all. And then I remember prime time coming off and, you know, the filming was going to be happening for that soon. And that was a huge. There was there was a big burden for me to make the decision to do it. I was always going to do it, I think, you know, but there was so much fear and doubt. And, you know, you're like, right on paper. The prison service are clearly getting ready to gear this guy up for release, you know. You're not safe at all. And you're about to put yourself on a national primetime special. You're actively putting up a roadblock to him thinking he's getting out soon. Like that was hard. That was scary. And not being supported in any sense in doing so, you know. I had no one there to talk me through it from the government. You know, there was no one there was no one to advise me. The advice that I sought out myself legally, I was told maybe don't do it. Do you know? It was kinda of said, you know, maybe this is time you kinda of need to protect yourself, Sinead. It looks like he's getting out. And then that kinda of, that actually helped because someone telling me not to do it made me think, hang on a minute, I am going to do this. Mm. Why should I have to hide that's not acceptable that's not okay i need to fight now that's not okay and that's what you've been doing it feels like i mean listening to you reading about what you have been through watching the documentary you did um for tg Cahad, you are i mean i i I've, I've come across a lot of people who are strong but i i i'm uh your strength and your resilience is remarkable. You are, you really are. If there was one word to probably use to describe you, I would say you are a fighter. You are, uh, and and it's so devastating that you have to be. Well, that's that's what it is. Yeah, I shouldn't have to no, do this. No, and I remember, you, you know, it was so difficult for Nicholas' family as well to, to do this primetime thing and, and mm. to put ourselves out there. And, you know, we walked into it thinking, okay, something really wrong has happened here. Yeah. We're going to expose it and it will be rectified. And it wasn't. Do you know, at the time we were accused of conflating temporary release with actual release. And, you know, the minister wouldn't acknowledge that something had had really gone wrong there. And I mean, my understanding of the Criminal Justice Act is that if, you know, these temporary releases are to test the waters, they're to gear someone up for release. And we were told, no, 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 that's not happening. But that is what's, what was happening. And even then, they didn't stop, you know. And then I just kind of found myself thinking, and it was family the same, was it even worth it? Why did we even do that? 
you know? Yeah. Why did we put our pain out there and make ourselves so vulnerable when nothing even came of it? And all at the time, it was just deflected about this new parole act. So under this new parole act, the minimum term for life sentence will be raised from seven until 12 years. And, you know, that's that's how the department dealt with it, was putting that out there, that we could be comforted by that and that we'd have more rights within this new parole act. You know, we'd be able to submit orally to the um, the parole board. Um, there'd definitely be more inclusion for victims and more rights there. But yet that act, that act still hasn't been established. You know, mm. it was it was signed into law in 2019 and it still hasn't been established. I know Minister McEntee now is is doing her best to have there, there's a lot of components to it and it, it's hope hope to be up and running. Oh, maybe towards the end of this summer. But I mean, I've had to campaign for that now for yeah. the last year and a half. You know, I've been so many campaigns. You know, with the Sun, Time to Act campaign, you know, to actually get this act up and running now. Can you ever move on with your life, do you think? Um, I've tried so hard for so many years, you know, and you kind of... And I did, I made great strides with... Hmm. Do you know, for me, I resumed college a few months after Nicola died and... You know, I did my best to try and do that, you know, and have a normal life and detach from what had happened to me because I felt like I was very much defined by it. It was such a high profile case. It was in the media so much, particularly with all the appeals and everything, you know, and that I was really struggling, obviously mentally, but mm -hmm. I was also struggling physically and I wasn't telling people. You know, I wasn't able to write. I wasn't, you know, when I was very stubborn and proud and, you know, I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't able to ha ask for a lot of help. help yeah. I felt I was like, no, just, you know, you're lucky to be alive. OK, you know, get on with it is how I felt a lot of times. And I ended up kind of in 2010. I, I left Ireland for many years because I was like, right, this isn't working out. You know, you're just. You're hopeless. You're, you, you know, I post-traumatic stress. I was watching all my peers around me, you know, really establish their careers and their families and, you know, moving on with their lives. And I, I was very lost because yeah. I know I was, I was very traumatized. You know, yeah. I, I lived in a lot of fear, you know, normal things, normal day life was very difficult for me. But, you know, I remember even getting up to the back, go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. That was a struggle. Do you know, I'd, I'd wake up and think, all right, you know, you wake up and think, all right, we're going to go to the bathroom. I'd have to open that door into darkness and live in the reality that I lived through someone with like a massacre like that, do you know? And I feel, is everyone okay behind this door? What am I walking out to? Yeah. Are my family alive? Do you know, and I'd, I was always grateful for my dad being such a loud snorer. That, mm. you know, I, I'd hear that and I'd be like, OK, it's, it's you're safe. Okay. You can walk out of this door now, Do you know, and and walking at night. That was a huge challenge. But I had a I had a great German shepherd. She was the best thing that ever happened to me with my recovery that way, because yeah. I was determined to not be afraid to go walking at nighttime, to not be afraid anymore. And I ended up 
leaving Ireland and being like, right, you don't feel safe. Your sense of safety and peace and security has been taken from you and you need to regain that. And I went above and beyond to challenge myself to do that, you know, to really feel confident again that I was safe and that I was okay. And I spent many years, I worked for a charity in Costa Rica where we'd protect uh, nesting sea turtles from poachers. And part of that was walking the beaches in the dark at in night. In the dark, yeah. You know, and, and trying to collect these turtles' eggs before they were poached. And just the repetitive nature of doing that was, was huge for me. It was frightening, it was scary to do that type of work, but it, it got me to a place where it was like, you can do that. But it was you beneficial, beach, yeah. You know? Mm. And I really put so much into that. I put my whole 20s and, and half of my 30s were, for me, really pushing myself to be able to have a normal life again, to be able to feel safe, to be able to feel confident to do that and to really recover from what was inflicted on me and what happened to Nicola. And I came back to Cork in, I think, around 2015, and, you know, I was, I felt good, right. you know, yeah. it was great. It was great to reconnect with my family and my friends. And I really started to build a life here again. And I felt good. I felt great. You know, I'm, I'm very determined, you know, kind of thing. Mm. So, you know, I really got back that sense of normality and that I was no longer kind of defined by what he did to me. Okay. You know, and then hearing about those day releases and the paroles and all of that in 2019, it just blew it out of the water for me. You know, even at the time, my arms started spasming and everything because it was going back into the motion yeah. of protecting my vital organs again. I was protecting myself again. And it's, it's so frightening that so much can happen to you, you know. So much has been taken from Nicola's family. They've been utterly traumatized. They've suffered the worst loss that you could ever suffer in life to lose a child and to lose one in that manner. And then yet now they are still fighting for justice for Nicola and for peace from Peter Whelan, from him returning to Cork. They have the right to have a safe and peaceful life yeah. I have the right for a safe and peaceful life we should not have to endure any more trauma from him mm. do you think he would kill again if he had the chance yeah definitely and you know I'm a very rational person mm. do you know I, I studied psychology for years I do research I've talked to people who work with prisoners who worked with murderers you know, and it's very clear and evident that he will kill again. I mean, he's shown no remorse for what he did. He has never taken any accountability for his actions or his behavior, which is it's clear evident from his constant appealing. His time in prison has not been one of accountability or looking at his offending behavior. That hasn't happened. He has just fought to be released. That is all he has done with his time. You know, he has all the hallmarks of a psychopath. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this 
grandiose sense that he is above the law has been shown time and time again. I mean, not only do I worry for my own safety, I mean, I worry for all of society in general. And it's frightening to think that the state has made these decisions without even having someone fulfill the minimum term of their sentencing, you know. And with all the appealing and campaigning that I've done, I've only gotten as far as being told that, again, from the prison, it wasn't the case that they were gearing him up for release. You know, it was a decision made by the prison psychologist, these temporary day releases or whatever. And then for me, that opens a whole other can of worms because, you know, there was a report a few years ago that there was only one prison in the country that meets the recommendation, recommended ratio of prisoner to psychologist. You know, you question who is qualified for these roles, who is making these decisions um, the mm. job for a prison therapist in Cork was 14 euro an hour last year is oh, what it was advertised oh, for. And my own counsellor that I've worked with since I had to work with her since hearing about the day releases, you know, herself worked in Germany for many years mm. with murderers, you know, and she would be highly qualified, highly qualified now and highly experienced. And it was an, it would have been a job that she would have been attracted to and that she would have been very good at. But she was utterly offended at the rate of pay. Of and, you know, she was saying to me, I really question who would be qualified for that position to be making those decisions, you know. And again, that's so shocking to hear. You would think it's something at such a, in a like a vital level. Yeah, and especially when you look at his character. I mean, the level of manipulation that he was able to return to the scene of the crime like that. And it's not as if he's even been acting like he's taking accountability in prison based on his appeals. You know, it's really Mm. frightening what's happened here. Utterly frightening. Yeah. What we uh, as a society are not being protected from. Like an evil like this that we're not being protected from. It's, it's, oh, it's ridiculous. It really is. I mean... I really hope to see change in this country. It's something that, you know, it's why I keep speaking out because, you know, I can see so much injustice and so much suffering for those bereaved by homicide. And I can't sit back and not speak out and not share my story. I can't do that. You know, I can't turn a blind eye to that. It's it's horrific what we're expected to deal with. And how you look at these convicted murderers, these these criminals, and the system is so balanced in their favor. You know, they're reintroduced back into society in spite of our trauma and our suffering. There's no regard for us from the system. None. None at all. Like, it's shocking. Yeah. We are treated like the criminals. We are treated like the people who have done something wrong. And I mean, at every stage of this, I'm like, how could I have been so naive? you know, to all of this. And, you know, I went through stages of thinking with our case in the last few years, how is this happening to us? And then my eyes really opened up to realize this isn't exclusive to Nicholas family and I. This is happening to everyone, you know, to everyone who suffered these losses. And it's, um, there has to be a change. It's yeah. inhumane the way that we are treated by the system. And it is the system. The system is 
It's not working. Not at all. Not I working. mean, the fact that so many people have said to me, I always assumed he wouldn't be allowed to return to Cork. I can't believe this. My assumption, I would have just taken for granted that there would be an exclusion zone there. Yeah. You know, that that's, yeah. that would be normal across the board globally. That's a normal procedure, do you know, and it's why isn't that happening here? And then, you know, I, I do my research. I look into these things and it's something that in the past it's been in the minister's power to enact an exclusion zone. But there is no direct channel for those bereaved to request one. So that's evidently why I assume that those things haven't been put into place. And it's 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 heartbreaking for me and Nicholas' family to now know that a this dangerous, violent murderer it's looking like he will be released someday, and even then that he can return back to where we have fought so hard to recover from what has happened. We have all fought fought so hard, and I mean even the ripple effects of it. Our friends, everyone yeah. that met Nicola, knew Nicola, it was affected by this crime. Cork was very affected by this, and still is. Course. you know yeah what do you think the future holds for you as in you're in cork now you're home but do you feel do you feel that that's where you will be in i don't know 10 20 years time or can you even say it's where i want to be yeah i can say it's where i want to be you know i know when all of this came up two years ago there was there was something inside me that was like run don't do this just Go back to Central America, you know? Right. Just, you're safe there. And mm. then I was like, no, no. I, I, I should have a right to have a peaceful and safe life. That is my human right. I don't see why these exclusion zones can't become commonplace. They're very little to ask. Very little. For, I think. I still can't get out of my head that it was done merely for the desire to kill i know and not that you know because even then you know yeah people would be saying to me you know with this you know coming up and i would have been you know speaking out is is, is frightening then because it's like what are the repercussions for me yeah with regards to him for doing that you know and then people would be like oh no do you know he wouldn't and i'm like you can't apply rational thought to an irrational human being. Mm -hmm. We don't know what he is capable of doing again or what he will do again. And, you know, someone has said to me, you know, when, when a prisoner is out on license, you know, if they sneeze, that's, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're caught or whatever. And I was like, look at his past behavior. Look at how quick it all turned within minutes, the damage he did that night. Yeah. You know, he's not going to sneeze. Like, it's not... He's going to go from one to a hundred, you know? It's so frustrating. It's so, it's, it's, I cannot begin to imagine what it's like for you. And I won't patronize you by even comparing, but as an outsider listening to you, I am, I'm angry. I'm heartbroken. I'm confused. I'm all these different things. And I'm imagining that anyone listening is going to feel the very, any sane person is going to feel the same as you. Um, and you know, it's, it's the system. It's the system. It's the, but the system, there are people behind the system and yeah. um, there needs to be, as you've used the word inhumane, where's the humanity in all of this? Where mm -hmm. is, where is the, the decency? And because this is not something that just affects 
it unfortunately has had a huge impact on your life and on Nicola's Nicola's life. It's been taken from her and her and her family mm. and those who loved and knew her. Um, but also all the other people that that could potentially suffer if he is released again and does something in you know on a whim in a frenzy that may only take moments it just yeah and it's like where is that duty of care to all of of us yeah yes how are nicola's family doing now i mean it's hard you know as much as i can talk about my trauma i can never understand the level of grief of what they suffer you Mm -hmm. know it's like you talk about the passage of time you don't ever get over losing a child that way it only gets more difficult i can only imagine every milestone they are more aware of what was taken from their beautiful daughter and what was taken from them it's like you know i'm sure every anniversary every birthday every new life in the family you know it's like where would nicola's life be what would she be doing now would she be a mother you know it's there's so much and that's that's never ending like they're her family serve a life sentence that's what they are serving they're serving a life sentence of trauma and grief for their poor daughter and what was taken from her she was 20 years of age she had her whole life ahead of her yeah and they're fighting for their their they the fact that they're having to do this the fact that they're having to speak out again and again it's not right it's not okay it's not i'm heartbroken you know and for them and and the other families that i've been in contact with and that i've met you know through this time in the last few years and to think about what they have to deal with with their own grief on on a day-to-day basis and that no one's supporting them you know no one's supporting their rights or or fighting for them to have to ever encounter these people ever again it's it is it's inhumane it's not right it really is not right I know it's the least that can be said but I just truly hope that sense will prevail that change will happen um and you're certainly you're fighting the cause and I I hope I truly hope that your efforts will not be in vain and I it needs to happen. It needs to have happened already. And the fact that that law has not been enacted um, yet, and even though you've been told that it will, it, it's it's. Uh, and it's, even then, it's only twelve years before that yeah. parole process begins. That's 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 tough, and that's tough for the people who are suffering from it. You know, and the families behind it all. That's difficult. That's a very short amount of time. When your loved one has been murdered, you know? Yeah. And the process is, is frightening. It's, you know, it's it's a difficult, hard process. Because even now, you know, I would have gotten, this is the first time I've been able to submit. And it's the first time Nicola's family have been able to submit, which we should have been able to do the whole time. But it's like, you're given notice by email that there's a parole hearing coming up. You have three weeks to submit your statement. No one is guiding you through that. No one is advising you on how to do that, where to even begin of how to do that. And then you're waiting for a decision to come back. And I mean, where are we now? We're in March. Like I've been waiting since November for that hearing to be heard. And I'm waiting for an email to come in one day 
that's going to tell me the outcome of that hearing. And I'm there waiting, thinking, do I need to leave? Is that my life here gone now? Do I have to leave Cork? Do I have to leave my family, my friends, my loved ones? Yeah. Like, what does the future hold for me? I'm waiting for an email, you know. You said you're going to therapy and I, I would imagine it's it's necessary to have to have that outlet, to have to have some assistance to, to navigate this. Yeah. I mean, that's something I pay for myself, you know, kind yeah. of thing as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm not supported, I don't feel at all there. And you, and you see how much a convicted murderer is supported by the state and I'm not, you know, and it's definitely. Obviously, working with a trauma counsellor has, has helped me navigate with this stuff. Of course, it has you know but again the root of it all is trying to find security and peace of mind yeah that's what it all boils down to and what are the state doing to support me in finding that yeah before we wrap up is there anything else you'd like to to say i know you've already said so much coming forward and speaking up it's really hard. It's really daunting. It's really intimidating, especially when there's no payoff. But I really want to encourage other people to speak out. Like, it's time we flip the script. You know, it's time the victims take back control. Like, mm. I'm trying to take back control of my life, the life that Peter Whelan took away from me. Mm. You know, and we have to continue to speak out. And we, we need other people to speak out on our behalf, too. We need other people to fight for us, you know. And to keep talking about it, to keep pushing. Yes. To keep having this topic arise until change happens. Well, thank you for being so brave to um, have this conversation with me on this podcast. And I hope for those who listen that they will will ensure that this is a conversation that's heard and that more than just being heard, that it's that change happens as a result um, of all that you're doing. I really hope you find find peace. I hope you're you're given the opportunity to find peace, that yeah. you're given that respect and support that you so richly deserve by the state, by by those in the powers that be. Um, mm-hmm. I really I truly hope that you get that. I'm absolutely honoured that you agreed to have this conversation and I'm so incredibly grateful. You're an absolute warrior. It's astounding the strength of character you have. Um Poor Nicola is not here, um, but you are keeping her her spirit alive and um, you are fighting. I suppose you're feeling, am, am I right in thinking you're feeling strengthened by her through this? Definitely, I would, because you're fighting for her yeah. side, her story to be told, because she just becomes, it feels like she just becomes a statistic in it all, you know, and that the real person that she was, the real life that she had, I, I feel is really lost in it, you know? And then it's also, Nicola is also forever attached to this monster, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, I got to gotta fight for justice for her. Her life has been devalued again and again by the department and the way that they've dealt with it, you know? It's like, where's their respect for her life that they're allowing her murderer parole hearings two years into his life sentence for her life, you know? 
I'm so thankful to Sinead for trusting me with her story. And for more thoughts from her, please check the show notes. You've been listening to Ready To Be Real Conversations. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.